Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to another week of The Followers. This is episode 29 and this week we've got another guest for you. So this week's guest is Carl Dillon. He's a native of Listowel in County Kerry. And uh, I suppose uh, just to kind of um, give a brief overview of his more recent work, he's uh, completed his uh, master's in uh, sports performance in uh, UL, where he took a look at uh, bilateral play in inter-county uh, Gaelic footballers. But he has a, a lot more um, behind him than that. So, Carl, I'll pass it over to you to give us a little bit of uh, background uh, on yourself, your um, basically everything that's gotten you to this point, your influences and, and whatnot. Demo, uh, Shane, John, thanks for having me on. So yeah, um, my background would be quite varied. I mean, I played football growing up, Listowel Emmets, Field Rangers, St. Michael's. I would have been development squad level footballer at under 16 level. And then, as the joke goes, I stopped growing. Um, and then, but then I, I suppose I, I had a business background, went back to Mary I, my mid-twenties, and became a primary school teacher and I suppose over the last 10 years from my mid-20s to mid-30s I was doing a lot of coaching in primary level and that really was where the, the seed was sown for my coaching um, and my interest in going back to college and doing the masters because I found the lads like as the, as the years were going by I was spending more and more time out in the field with the, 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 the boys and girls coaching them. Um, and it wasn't really a case of here's the ball, lads, here's the bibs, off you go. Like the school went from, and it is something I'd be quite proud of, it, the school went from um, Dual National School, a school that never won anything, to won numerous coming Munskulls in Kerry, won two Munster Skills competitions. And that all came about just through hard work and creating a culture and proper coaching, I believe, as well, you know. And as I said to you earlier in the week, as the years go by, I used that as a, almost a laboratory to explore my own coaching methods and techniques and to see what works, what doesn't work. And it became very apparent to me that the, the best players, both boys and girls at that age, were bilateral and were doing athletics in their local athletics club. So the the runners, we'll call them, and they may not necessarily have been very fast runners, but they used to glide. They used to glide over the ground and their, their running efficiency was just superb. Um, and also they used to play basketball, they used to play soccer. And it was very, and it wasn't just one. It was numerous examples year after year after year. And you play opposition teams in 11, 12 years of age and you'd find out, Jesus, Johnny over there for the other team, who's he? You'd ask about him and you'd find out he's playing all these sports, he's doing athletics, he's doing cross country. Um, and you see, Jesus, yeah, there's a serious pattern developing here. And you would see that the, the non-dominant side was huge. Now, I will say, <clears throat> then, as, as my name became a bit more prominent in North Kerry over the last few years, you do get asked to get involved in more and more teams. Um, and when I got involved in 2019 with Field Rangers with Paul Galvin, Noel Kennelly, Brian Scanlon, 
So Noel and Brian would would have played with Kerry. Paul obviously played with Kerry. Uh, there was a big push on the non-dominant side then with that team. Um, and I know with Brian Scanlon, he's worked with Kerry development squads. He, I'd be constantly asking him what they'd be doing with the development squads. And um, with development squads over the years, they've, I think, initially with Kerry development squads, I can't speak for other counties, there was a big push about winning. But then they changed that um, to more de- literally developing and improving players. And if they won underage competitions, so be it. So they have now, I know from talking to Brian, they have brought in a lot of skill assessments, a lot of work on the non-dominant side. And he said, that there's no question you have to be more uh, bilateral to play for carry underage teams than you would have been at his time growing up. So they, that definitely, anyway, 2019 was a big year for me in, ter- in terms of tickling the mind on, on the non-dominant side again at that level. Um then what happened was I, the direction of my teaching, I kind of decided this wasn't fulfilling me anymore. I found that I was more ambitious in terms of football. I had a serious passion for it. Um, I was getting a little bit bored by it. And the opportunity to do the MSC in sport performance came up. Um, applied for it. I didn't have a sports science degree so I had to write out you know the 1000 word essay as to why I'd be suited etc uh, luckily enough I had a few good references and uh, started that January 2020 got seven good weeks in Limerick before Covid took over and uh, but the one significant thing before going to different modules I will say was the thesis titles came out in March and it was very strange, actually, because someone on a, a previous management team, so people who listen to this and say, boy, that hurt. And they'd be like, oh, Jesus, you're mad, pretentious. And I remember the first time I'd heard that term, I had that reaction. I was like, well, all right, boy, that hurt, like, you know what I mean? And uh, I was like, why don't you just say the bad side, like, you know? So life comes at you fast, Demo, because I saw the thesis titles and it was, the study of bilateral play at Intercounty. I was like, ah, I could do it. That was the end of that. And uh, I'd say I nearly hunted down the supervisor there that day. I said, I'm doing it. <laughs> and um, in fairness, it was a, it, it was quite an open title. It had to be elite. But we had a good discussion. It could have been quantitative, which would have involved sports code and video analysis, or it could have been the direction I brought it in. So it morphed into the direction I brought it into. Um, and that just went from step to step to step. Some people saw their thesis titles and didn't really look at it again for months. But because I was fascinated by it, I was doing exams, I was doing assignments, but I was constantly doing thinking about the thesis in the background. I was always asking players who played at high levels, what do you think about this? And um, some of those informal conversations were priceless in terms of framing my research going forward. And and Carol, b- before we kind of dig more into the Sports Performance Masters and your actual thesis, just to touch a little bit more on your background, you mentioned there with Duan National School that without having a major history of it, he started winning more, particularly through a culture change. 
Now, in change and, and framing that culture, was your, and, and you mentioned it there in the career development squads, the focus on winning, was it a focus on development and the byproduct of that was just winning more? Or did you start saying, well, let's try and win a little bit here and create a bit of a buzz from that? Or did both kind of go hand in hand? That's a really good question. And I've had debates with people about this. Because in general, I'll get into that in a second. I think it's all very well for people to say, it's all about participation. Okay. And I agree. But you have to have an agreement amongst coaches that that's what it is. So by that, I can't be over a team where we all say, right, let's everybody gets a game here today and we're all in Cloud Cuckoo Land. And Shane is bringing in a team where we're winning, lads, and that's it. And my team get beaten by 35 points. That creates a big problem in participation where lads will quickly fall off. So it's all very well to talk about participation and everyone getting the game. But I honestly feel, and I feel really strongly about this, there has to be an agreement or otherwise you're bringing a knife into a gunfight. And then people won't be long quitting because they'll say, I'm getting, we're getting hammered here. So that's the first thing I'll say. What I will say is there wasn't a culture in the school. There wasn't, to be honest, there wasn't a, a lot of interest in bringing kids out. Um... I mean, Tomás O'Shea famously said, if, if school systems are working effectively, there isn't a need for development squads. But what is happening is that there's a lack of volunteerism in teaching. And I saw it firsthand. So what was happening, I would have the lads out every lunch break kicking ball. You'd have a ball, one ball between two, you have 15, 20 footballs, you know, developing their non-dominant side. That was unheard of. And to be honest, it just, it, it, it started from there. Um, it was giving them an opportunity to practice. It was giving them an opportunity to improve. Um, so yeah, it, it slowly built up over time. Um, from us being competitive, not getting hockeyed, to us getting into finals, losing finals, to us winning. The key thing was in, we won one final. And it's amazing at that level whether people want to admit it or not, if people, if boys and girls in first or second class are in the school and they see the boys and girls in fifth and sixth class winning and being paraded in the hall, they want a piece of that action. And you multiply that by 100 if Kerry come in with the Sam McGuire. You know, that's the, to me, that's a great advertisement for participation is to see, Jesus, if we play this game, we can actually feel good about ourselves. We can actually win things. It's not that's you just want to be competitive. You don't want it's not about winning every year. Of course it's not. But I, I feel you have to give children a chance to be competitive and feel they have a chance. Um and then it 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 kind of escalates from there and they want to they feel important, they feel valued, they feel they're a part of something. And when they're in third class, they want to they want to they look up to the boys in sixth class. I really found that now. Um I've found from times, sometimes trying to strike that balance between winning and development, and they can go hand in hand quite well. And as you say, the competition you're in and the influence from the other coaches does have a huge bearing on it. That if all of the other teams are playing or schools are playing, put out the seven or nine biggest players that does have a big impact on you who may be trying to develop skills into smaller players and be willing to take a loss here and there, a, a tough day or whatever. But if they are so focused on winning, it can just set you back so far. So that 
that shared goal amongst a group and whether that comes from Kerry County Board, GA as a whole or whatever sport it is, that's really important um, to keep in mind on what it is actually you're trying to develop. I think you kind of see that much clearer kind of in the footballing world. I know the Dutch Football Association, they don't even keep score up until I think it's, I don't know the exact name, but I think it's under 12s. And like you can see, the results of their academies speak for themselves. Like just getting, I suppose, once you get to that under 12 level, you'll know who actively enjoys football and then you can put a competitive element into it because they know they've built up the love of the sport and it's not just based on the team or the area they're from. But I, I think as well people shouldn't underestimate... You see, I, 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 I feel strongly about com- competition anyway because if you put two boys at six years of age at one end of the yard and say, right, let's race there from A to B, they will try and cheat the ready, steady goal. There is an inherent competitiveness in humans and in boys and in girls, you know. You know, even if you put a ball and a stone in the middle of a yard to, with children and say, lads, we're playing a game of soccer here, they will start keeping scores. Um, and I, I've heard of the IX thing and it's it's fantastic. It really is. And I know Dennis Birkin talks about how developing characters and personalities is more important. Um, but... I, I think we can't negate the evolution of humans either, you know. Uh, I think humans, by their very nature, are, are competitive. And boys, like, as I say, if you put two five, six-year-old boys one into the yard and say, right, let's go from A to B, they, they, they'll, they'll try and pull each other down, <laughs> you know. Me and Damon <laughs> still do that when we race. <laughs> <laughs> We we'd a we'd a player senior at our club who said I was never the fastest for me to be, but I never started for me. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, like it's 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 amazing to see it. Mm. And I, I actually said I said to the children when I used to be teaching them, you know, I'd have an interest in doping, and I'm not saying I used to dope the children here, <laughs> but uh, I have an interest in the philosophy of doping, and. My question to the fifth and sixth class every year would be, right, lads, we have a school quiz. This is an imaginary school quiz. You can see the answers and guaranteed you won't be caught. I can guarantee you will not be caught. And if you see the answers, you're obviously going to win the quiz. Hands up here, who here would cheat? And every year, bar none, it was slightly under 50% to put their hand up. And it wasn't just the, the, the children you'd expect would be the, the weakest. And in, in a lot of times it was the very best children, you know. Uh, so there is that competitiveness there that we shouldn't underestimate. As part of um, Leaving Sir P, I teach that the exam subject, but um, we do around ethics and drugs and sport. And I, and I usually show them a few videos of uh, Kevin McManaman pulling down Lee Keegan or, or other little aspects of cheating. And I get them to compare that to Lance Armstrong. And I say, are they both the same? Like, oh, no way. So like, obviously, if in your game, you have to pull some down, you'll pull them down. But there's no way you can take the drugs. And I'm like, but aren't they both cheating? And it's the way they look at it so differently, how they can't equate one with the other and feel one is perfectly acceptable and normal because it's, while not fully encouraged, it's not as actively discouraged in the sport, whereas the, the doping side, you would hope, is. Is that is have you covered that? That's fascinating that you cover that because I completely and totally agree with you. I don't see the difference. I actually wouldn't either, but I'm always surprised at in fifth year and they're like, no way, like obviously you can pull someone down, but sure, like mainly because I, they feel the doping as 
so far in advance premeditated that just because you're putting so much more of an effort into cheating that pulling someone down spur of the moment is okay now i i wouldn't agree with that at all but i'm like oh it's interesting the way they're thinking about that i mean if you have like Luis suarez in 2010 world and i'm a liverpool fan but in 2010 world cup he handballed the ball in the line right and was it they, didn't they miss the subsequent penalty but anyway um, yeah, yeah, essentially, essentially, he got away with it, and Uruguay got over the line because he cheated. So, like, it it, it it is a strange circumstance that that's more accepted than if he was caught doping, and is far more like directly impactful on it. Like, you could say, okay, obviously, in some sports, doping will have far more of a direct impact on the end outcome, weightlifting, cycling, sprinting, stuff like that. In GA, it's very hard to say if if a team or a player is is that's what's directly impacting their improved performance maybe maybe not i'm not entirely sure whereas if you found someone was taking drugs in soccer rugby gaelic football whatever you'd be like oh complete cheater they have to be thrown out whereas that direct impact of sticking your arm out and stopping the ball like it's it, cr- it crosses such a definitive line yet people are more like oh, i was very smart by him wasn't it <laughs> yeah absolutely 100 percent. yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, that was that was how I got the to Limerick anyway. That was part of the journey, you know. Just slightly then, you went and did the the were you coaching before you went back to Mary I to do the primary teaching? I actually wasn't. I I kind of <clears throat> I I played an awful lot of football growing up until I was like twenty one, twenty two. And I was lucky enough to play with guys who went on and played with Kerry and won all earns with Kerry, um, underage. We had a really good team and I always wanted to play Kerry Minor and I suppose I was on track. I mean, to a certain degree, but come minor, I I wasn't, I was definitely wasn't tall enough. And after that, then I was like, sure, what's the point? Which was absolutely insane. Like, you know what I mean? Looking back, but I, I just thought, sure, there's no point now. And, uh, and I kind of stopped. Um, so to answer your question, no, I, I'd lost interest. I was just following football from afar at that point. Um, so it was it was funny how life worked out. It was just that uh, when I went back teaching, I got as the token male in the school. I was landed with the football, you know, and that is a problem. And I might get onto it later on. That is a problem in national school level. Is the there are women? Of of, of course, there are females who do fantastic work in sport, but in in the primary school system. But there is a serious lack of males in the primary school system. Um, in the teaching profession and that does impact on the amount of sport they do at lunchtimes um, so what I would say is that I was I was as the token male I was I was given the job and I said Asher Grand yeah you'll do anything to get the job at the start and very quickly you realized God I love this I absolutely love this like as I say it became a laboratory for what worked what didn't work and it's amazing how much they can take in in terms of instructions did you find teaching and the coaching informed each other? Like, were you out doing something that at lunchtime, coaching-wise, and you're like, oh, I, c- I can actually take this back to the classroom tomorrow, or vice versa? I found that there did. So I was a sixth-class teacher in latter years. And what I can say is that they would go through a wall for you inside in the classroom. The respect they'd have for you inside in the classroom was unreal. I mean, you could leave that classroom for half an hour and you come back and this will be in the same spot. Um, what you said, like, it shouldn't underestimate it really how much they look up to you as a coach and a teacher at that level. Um, and 
yeah, no, that, that I, I suppose character development was the big thing. You know, I used to always talk to them about this. I suppose it, similar to your ethics thing. I'd be like, I'd be saying to the kids, look, lads, it's like this. We're going to win. We're going to lose. If we all celebrate every day, we all get medals. You know, that's not life. And I said, look, lads, come 16, 17, 18. If you don't prepare yourselves for losing some games, how are you going to deal with life? Is Mammy, are you going to go for a job at 18 years of age and not get it? Is Mammy going to come in and ask the employer, why didn't you give Johnny a job? You know, and I, I, I'd never personalize it, but I would explain to them. I said, look, there, there is a point to this. And sometimes we got to, life isn't fair. Because as I heard before, like, fairness, lads, is me and Demo or me and you training for three months solid and both of us finishing uh, a race at the same time. You know, of course that wouldn't happen. Genetics take over, you know, and you'd probably beat me by half a mile or whatever. You know, that's, is that fair? No, but that's life. And I think that's the, the the value of sport at that age. It teaches character and it also teaches, I'd say to the kids, lads, you know, why should, if Johnny is struggling with his mats, okay, just for argument's sake, Johnny is struggling with his mats and Johnny gets zero in his mats, that teacher will give him zero. Doesn't, you know, not two, two, two ways about it. How, why do we have a situation where Johnny might excel at sport but we feel the need to only give him a certain amount of time because everybody has to get a go. Shouldn't Johnny have his moment to excel on the sports field when Johnny is struggling with his maths? So I, that's what I often think about that. You know, the, like the, the, the thing where the attitude where everybody gets a medal. I, I would often say, I get the point. But does that teach anyone to work harder? Does that teach anyone to go off and practice themselves? To that end, I wouldn't, I, I don't particularly agree with everyone getting a medal, but I do agree more that everyone should have a chance to improve. And often those chances to improve are through time on the field. Now, I get that someone who may be excelling on the pitch and someone who is, who is far away from it, if they're if you were to currently rank some of the weaker players out of 10 and they're at 0, they have no hope of ever getting from 0 to 1 without time on the field and playing. I often think as well that not keeping scoring games and the go game system and stuff like that is there to protect players from overly ambitious coaches who think that if I win this under 10 blitz, Jim Gavin's going to give me a call in the morning now and bring me in as a selector. And some are definitely thinking that way. The the players, the 8, 9, 10 year olds, like, even though the parents say to them afterwards, oh, what was the score? Oh, it was a draw. The players know well who won and lost. I think that does go some extent towards developing that resiliency. And if anyone's ever read any of Jonathan Haidt's work, Happiness Hypothesis, Coddling the American Mind, that like that, there is a serious lack of resiliency there in, in younger people at the minute. And I think they do develop it quite a bit through even, and not just necessarily the score, but even the you and me go for a ball and you win it. That's a little bit of a thing I have to overcome here and now. And I think... If coaches can focus on 
the smaller battles within a game and trying to say can we come out on top in the majority of those and how do we come out on top of those can develop it far more than necessarily the few coaches who focus completely on let's win this game this blitz this tournament and maybe take the emphasis away from that and more so on the smaller battles within yeah absolutely no that, that that's fair enough as well i think there is a there, there is val- i think there's validity an awful lot of validity what you're saying and and that chain line of thinking uh, but in, in, I suppose in terms of the classroom, the character, I, 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 in term, my ability to build up relationships, that was the big thing for me and build up relationships with the children and find out how they saw things. And it's amazing, actually, how if you're if you're a coach slash teacher and you ask a, t- a child the day after a match, what do you think? What do you where do you think we went wrong? Wrong, quote unquote. And he'd say, well, Mr. Dillon, I, I think you shouldn't have changed me or you should you brought me out to midfield and we should have done this, we should have done that. And it's it's amazing how sharp some of them are, you know. And you'd open your ears and you'd say, Fair enough, yeah, you're right. <clears throat> and also humility. There's many a time I come in the next day and I'm say after a match, lads, I changed certain thing yesterday. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Um and they'd be looking at me thinking, Jesus, we're not used to this at all. We're not used to an adult coming around and saying, you know, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. So, yeah, I, I do think that's important. So it, it's more the informal stuff, um, more so than we'll say the, the, the curricular, the formal curricular subject areas. That's where. And I, I do think the memories that th- those children who are now adults, some of them, it's, they've, they come on and they've come on like to play development squad level, but they still remember some of those matches that they played in fifth and sixth class. It's funny, isn't it? That, that's a really good point about showing that humility and honesty with the players afterwards. And even at a young age, this partly the sense of respect they'll develop for you, but also in a sense, you are in a position as a role model, but to show you're willing to that, it's far more likely to bring that out with them at future situations as well. But uh, now and again, I would put up clips on YouTube of matches and, not them, obviously, uh, carry matches. And I'd say such and such had the ball here, lads. What do you think he should have done? Just tactically, just throwing it out there, you know. And um, they're so sharp, like some of them. I should have recycled there, sir. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Just, yeah, it's really it's really interesting now. I need, some of them would say, ah, sure, look at that, Mr. Villain. He had to turn back. He'd no, he'd no left side. He'd no left side. So, yeah, yeah. No, definitely, no. They're sharp. Um, an area, uh, Carl, that I'm just kind of uh, wondering or thinking a little about since you mentioned just the, um, you know, children being involved in different uh, types of sports and that and just the, um, I suppose, being open to different things. Now, I I suppose I'm going to come at this from an, an athletics perspective, but uh, from my own uh, experience, obviously, we're both from, from Kerry, so I'm, I'm speaking more from a a knowing the area perspective but Dewar for example would have been a big area when it came to say something like community games um when I was when I was growing up and uh the community games I suppose is <clears throat> obviously it, it, it was very well known for uh getting to to Mosny and and stuff like that for um you know but it was for an array of different things and it wasn't just the physical uh sports like your athletics your uh basketball it wasn't just your main frame sports it also included for things like chess drafts and stuff like that that i found that or i i found that a lot of the more maybe rural uh places uh, uh, from around the country really grabbed on 
to the community games as uh, a, an outlet, you know, or as a, as a way to get uh, their children involved in uh, in different uh, sports and different activities, and that and that the, the a lot of the town area teams didn't necessarily buy in that much, but they were then focus more on their actual, you know, their GA clubs or their soccer club. And uh, I found that they didn't actually have uh, as maybe big of um, a, 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 or as varied uh, an experience when it came to different types of, of sports. Um, would you uh, have much thought around that, you know, with say the, since we do know that there is a, a huge positive, uh, positive aspect to children who've been involved in athletics, you can almost see him. I think the Dervla Roar comment recently on how when she's watching different um, uh, Gaelic players, uh, you know, that she can see who from their running technique, who has actually grown up in athletics. But would you have seen much uh, in that line now from, I suppose, teaching, coaching? Uh, would you have seen, uh, how, how do you feel things are going? Because I do know numbers in community games have, have been dropping the last number of years. And just, just looking for maybe your thoughts around that. No, that's interesting because I would have been brought up, Damo, uh, slightly before you, in all fairness, but where it was, uh, era was kind of old school when you're growing up in the stall. And it was kind of this attitude that it's J all the way, lads, and you don't want to be playing those foreign games. And you don't want, not, not even the foreign games, or you don't want it to be interfering with your training for the J. You you'll get burned out. There was this thing salty that if you play too many sports, you'll get burned out. And oh my god, it was so um, it was so wrong. Like it was so so wrong. So thank God, now that's changed, and I see a lot of the kids again. The really good kids, they're playing basketball, not just athletics. They're playing basketball. I mean, if you want to talk about a sport that'll improve your decision making and your spatial awareness, my god, like basketball superior to playing soccer. Um, and in fairness, the development squad in Kerry. The crossover from the under fourteen Kerry development squad guys who would have played Kennedy Cup the same year is huge, and I know there is a massive bit of leeway given to those Kennedy Cup boys um, that year, where they're like, "Look, no, it's fine, it, it's grand," because we know in Kerry that push comes to shove, they'll declare for football anyway. Um, there's a kind of an acknowledgement that for their long term development, it, it, it'll be worth it. Um, so no, I, I I'd be in this imaginary situation here, Demo, if you have, like we're in Russia or something and you want to turn this uh, robot into the perfect footballer, <laughs> um, I would send him off to all these sports. And then granted it, maybe 16, specialise. And it'd be more for his own um, body and for his own, like, f- to keep him physically ready or physically yeah, keep keep him away from injury that I would ask him to specialise come 16 because, you know, carry minors, if they're at carry minor level, they're training three, four nights a week. Um, you don't want to be, and that's along with gym sessions, you don't want them to be asking them to do two, three sessions a week with other sports as well. Suddenly he's out twice a day, maybe on Saturdays, twice a day, Sundays. But up until the specialisation years, I would absolutely recommend all those sports. And you know what? In fairness, as coaches, as GA coaches, we got to suck it up. I often said it to the kids. Often said it to the kids. If you come to me on Monday and say, look, Mr. Dillon, I want to play basketball today. I don't want to play football. I'd say, Jesus, good luck. No problem at all, man. Um, I'd say, we'd love to have you up whenever you want to come back again. You've got to respect that as well, that people have their favourite sports. You know? 
that that's an, that's an important humility. I think that slowly more and more GA coaches are starting to learn. I see a club beside me; they would be a a really successful hurling club back through the years throughout Leinster and Wexford, and one of the best coaches I've ever met. He is currently encouraging his his own son and daughter to do gymnastics once a week for the winter and athletics year round and do 10 week blocks of swimming lessons because he just says long term it'll stand to him so much for their overall athletic development their overall movement skills and just imbalances through their whole body i was so impressed this year my club like we're purely hurling we'd know like we've we used to have a junior football team and then maybe every eight years we might have an underage football team at under 13 or 15 level. But the, the lads over the sevens and nines are really eager when it gets back going to play football this year. And they even changed around when hurling training was to encourage all the lads to go join the local soccer club. And like, like that's so unheard of on GA. And when the lads told me they were doing it, I was like, lads, I'm, I'm so impressed with this now. It's really going to develop them, get them playing a different sport, develop some new movement skills, everything like. Huge. Did you see the FAI... Um rude doctor they tried to bring in last year uh at, at under from under 14 level uh kids around ireland were, had to specialize under 13 it's, it's under 13 national league that's insane and it's so short-sighted from so many different levels in ireland of all countries and then to make them pick at that level and even scientifically it i, I believe it's very short-sighted and i did get a bit of kickback and it has it have they changed or anything no, it's definitely still in place from the under-13s, but I think it's more to give them a level of, not international is wrong, but like inter-county football. So as in like, so the, it's basically kind of in conjunction with the League of Ireland currently, because the League of Ireland currently is kind of, there's no clear pathway from underage football through to the League of Ireland. So I think that's more their goal rather than getting them to entirely specialise in football. But I know what you mean, there definitely is gaps in it if, if it means you can't have multi-sports athletes. Well, I... I, I see that argument, and that's fair enough when you put it like that, that that would be their uh, rationale. Because yeah. there is, I suppose, there's an inter-county ga option yeah. there at that age if you're playing hurling or football. There just wasn't one for, and again, in rugby, it's kind of the same, but rugby, they'd nearly be single sports athletes at that stage. But yeah, there's definitely problems with it, but it is that sort of approach. My fear there is that from a, from a, a soccer perspective, that you will lose young guys needlessly at a young age when you don't need to because if you take from a Kerry perspective look GA still really is the only show in town you know yeah. and if you ask a young boy there's something palpable about the green and gold you know yeah. um, you could see a Kerry player walking down the street and say Jesus look that's that's how close he is yeah. um, if you make a 13 year old Kerry lad choose a lot of times they will choose the, the guy like so yeah. that'd be my take I suppose with um, with that in mind, when we're talking about other sports, and I suppose leading back in towards your your own research with bilateral uh, play. I mean, if you take basketball, like we've mentioned a few times there, like uh, I, I played basketball up until I was eighteen, and a massive part of that was you know being equal on both your right hand and left hand whether it was carrying the ball whether it was laying the ball up um being able to pass you know uh, obviously spatial awareness all that fitness the whole lot but uh, i suppose looking at your uh, your research uh, with uh, bilateral play in football and in gaelic football obviously um the same passes over for for, for hurling too you know but it it, it have uh, i suppose have you how did you come to you know linking 
those sports uh, in with your 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 thesis uh, findings? Have you, or is there anything that you know from your your? I suppose maybe even if you gave us a, a rundown on how on what your research kind of uh, involved. So that it, it started off in the March meeting with the supervisor where we were like we had a title but how do we go from here and I just said to him look I know a certain amount of people um started talking to him informally and then we we quickly came to the realization let's do a qualitative piece which involved um interviews so 19 interviews 14 players five coaches slash managers all had coached or managed at uh, division one level um and there was numerous counties represented as I said to you I think there was all of them had won all um, all Ireland's at different levels, and I think there was nine or ten All Stars in there. So that I I feel there was a very very high caliber, and then it, it it took on a life of its own where these are high caliber guys here. Like this would be very silly of people on the outside. I feel to ignore what they're saying and to ignore their experiences. But getting onto the multi sporting, I had read the 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 academic research about it beforehand but it just became a, a team very quickly along the interviews that these guys were the the, the the bilateral lads who would have considered themselves bilateral were playing soccer were playing basketball were playing other sports growing up that it just it just it was a running team and there was one massive there was one huge comment from a lad he said he went into county minor training and he just said Carl what I found he said was that the townies who were the townies who were playing soccer they were the the the, the real bilateral lads on the team um, and that was I felt that was a quite a strong quote there was another guy who was playing basketball he he felt he was extremely proficient on his non-dominant hand directly as a result of basketball there was another guy same thing basketball um, his ability to pivot and like turn his backside into players all as it came about his fields as a result of basketball um, so I, I wouldn't have said I went in with this idea that I'm going to really drill them on the multi-sport thing it just became very apparent to them very quickly that this was an ongoing team Did you find any reasoning behind as opposed to just playing soccer was there something that like were they encouraged that 10, 11, 12 to develop both sides or was it a case of some of them kind of realised themselves that I should develop my left foot here like I have a cousin who, who was decent at soccer and football when he was younger and he said I should really get good at my left foot here and it came from being at home playing FIFA or Pro Evo that the players who he could switch onto right or left feet were way more valuable to him when he was playing computer games so then he decided oh, maybe the same thing might work for me when I actually play matches that's fascinating though that's really interesting um there was one guy I interviewed as a pilot interview. He didn't qualify because uh, he, they weren't Division One um, county, but he was a county player. But he came from a dual county, and he said a massive reason he felt why he was uh, two sided was be. I, I look you. This is where you have will speak to me because <laughs> where I am, I don't. A hurley is a weapon, like not <laughs> not something you play hurling with. So you know you can you can take over the expertise on this one. But what he said was in his hurling area, it was just a given that you were expected to be two sided with a hurley, and that obviously translated to football. Um, he, he so uh, would you speak to that actually? 
Yeah, it, it was very, very much encouraged in us that you need to be able to play off both sides. Now, at the same time, the coach and I grew up through was very, very drill-based. And it was actually quite easy to get away with being one side because you go out around this corner and turn your right. And now the next time, lads, make sure and turn off your left. But if the coach isn't looking at you, you're just like, oh, I'll just go off my right again, no one low. What I found developed me well on both sides, and I wasn't particularly good at it. But up along underage, I could kind of hit off my left, where and I played corner or wing back, whereas the lads who played on the other side could only hit off the right. So I was played on the left a lot. So I had to get good at striking off my left. I think that becomes a, a constraints-led approach in that without it being a goal of the coach, I ended up being good on both sides purely because of where I was positioned in games an awful lot. It, because soccer possibly had more of a games-based approach or maybe even... A, they naturally kind of fell into games more and small sided stuff. Is that why they possibly developed bilaterally as well? Because to get themselves out of challenging situations in the little games they played, they had to be able to go right and left. That's really interesting there. But And what I'm about to say to you will be contradictory, but, but I, all I can do is reveal what those interviews revealed. So one player who's, he won a player of the year award. Um, he feels since he's had children and retired, he has developed his non-dominant side an awful lot. And I was like, what? And he said, out the back of the house with the children, kicking the ball off the wall, soccer style, and just kicking the ball back, whatever side the ball falls on. And that's why I, in my coaching now, I feel it's very important to throw the ball. Um, if I'm coaching Demo there now, and I, I, I'll, I'll throw the ball to him, and I'll say, Damo, you have to kick the ball on whatever side this ball comes to it. I'm not going to tell you beforehand you have to kick it with your left. So I, I feel that intuition that we all have in, in built in us, that instinct, it's hardwired. And it was interesting what he said about the, the, the soccer out the side, the side of the house with the kids and just kicking the ball wherever way it falls. Oh, the, oh yeah, but there was, a, there was a study done. There was a study done about in soccer. 1998 World Cup, he did, the the researcher Kerry, he used a sports code to code the matches. And he found that there was a large percentage, when when players used their non-dominant side, there was success on a very large percentage of cases, over 90%. Yet the players at that level were still extremely reluctant to use their non-dominant side. And in his, yeah, I can see your eyes moving up. And in, he, he, he actually said in his conclusion, it, 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 he's unsure why. Now, I used to pose that question to the players in my interviews. Say, this is a study, blah, blah, blah. Why do you think this is? Um, I'll tell you in a second what a lot of them said, but why do you think it is? I think it's because the defender is always expecting them to go on to their stronger side and then and they're over committing to protect that side and then when they do cut back onto their weaker side they're like oh I wasn't expecting this and just buys them that extra half a second I'd say to be honest if it's kind of like if you think about it at a World Cup level if you're at a World Cup level there's a lot on the line that you're going to be like right well I have my dominant foot I know it's my dominant foot you're almost going to you're almost hardwired to go to that when you're in it's almost like a fight or flight response you're like right well I should hit this with my, right, with my left foot because I'm left footed going through. Whereas it takes it takes a smarter player to kind of think twice, slow the game down in their head and go like, right, no. Kind of you have to be a step ahead to think, okay, I can go on to the other side. Yeah. I, the, the, the big thing, I, 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 a lot of the players and myself were 
on similar lines to Shane, which is why John, I, I thought that's really interesting what you just said. Um, I can't say whether who's right and who's wrong. I, I, what I can say is that instinct and habit is a huge problem in the coaching of the non-dominant side, especially at senior level. And that's why if I know a player last year during lockdown who I interviewed who was doing an awful lot of work on his non-dominant side, but I still saw him playing um, after lockdown. And it was it was quite evident that he was still quite, he was still going to his dominant side the whole time. And so just because you're practicing your non-dominant side doesn't mean it's effective practice. So there's a thing called, there's a difference between practice and deliberate practice. Deliberate practice is mentally very draining, but it's also very... Um, the results are far greater. Ed Collin did a study on this. And with, with deliberate practice, and what I would say to any guy is, are you simulating pressure? Are you kicking the ball stationary? Are you kicking the ball on the run? Or is there anyone mimicking a defender? Um, going down with just 100 footballs, kick, stationary kicking with your non-dominant side. It's better than nothing, but it isn't going to get you out of the habit of constantly going on to your uh, dominant side. And there was a coach, obviously can't name him, who said that they lost a really important league match in the last couple of years because his player turned on to his dominant side in the last few minutes of the game and the other team dispossessed him, went up the field and scored a goal. No, it was a national league match. And I turned around to him and I said, how do you, in your view, stop that? where the player instinctively goes back to their excuse me, dominant side, even though they're turning back into trouble. <laughs> he said, Carl, if you find out the answer, please tell me. Because um, he was kind of at a loss himself. Now, there was another coach who was absolutely brilliant on that instinct and coaching the instinct, for want of a better word, coach that instinct out of players. And it's what I'm alluding to with Demo and the example I'm giving. His skill assessment and his skill drill was the coach is feeding the ball in to the player and your first play has to be on the side the ball lands and tough look if it's on your non-dominant side so there what, what, he, what he taught me was that the players came to him at the end of the year and that um, it's a slow process like it's a very very slow process and it it demands a lot of um, patience so if you're if I'm the skills coach it demands a lot of patience by management because you're in SNC, you're in nutrition. The, the, I think the results can be a lot more palpable and concrete after three to four months, relevant re, relative to where your starting point was. But how do you measure results in skill acquisition? You know, it's it's a grey area. And as I said to you at the start, Ed Colin is doing devising skill assessments, um, but it is an area where I. I I, I feel it on a broader sense. If you think about SNC, how much it has in, come on and evolved in the last 20 years, and I'm sure, look, you will say it has more area to cover. I think the area of skill assessment and skill acquisition, it's miles behind. We have so much more to learn. We really, really do. And um, I, what I would say as well is that we have to start using a collaborative approach with players. And real good experienced players, you come to come back to you after four to six weeks or whatever and say, Carl, X, Y, and Z is working. X, Y, and Z is not working. Okay. One of the coaches, he was brilliant. He said that even though they won 
a certain thing. Um, the players still came back to him at the end of the year and say that was good, but we can make it better by doing blah, blah, blah. So that coach taught me what they did in to simulate pressure was that in the example of me kicking the ball to Demo, there was a player, a defender, literally on an athletic starting blocks when the whistle was blown. So not alone was he forced to kick on the side uh, he caught the ball on, there was an opposition defender simulating that pressure. So he he really, it, it, it was becoming instinctive again. Um, I thought that was really good as well. Um, but then you go back to culture and that same coach told me his manager on the first year, it could have gone two ways, he said, because he said that the manager was looking on at these uh, non-dominant skills training sessions. And I think, the I believe the sports psychologist happened to be there the same night. And the sports psychologist kind of looked at the manager and said, you're not sold on this. And the manager said, oh, how do you know? He said, your demeanor. And I think the sports psychologist turned around to him and said, well, even if you're not, you've got to pretend that you are because the players are going to detect that you're not sold on it. And if they detect that, they won't be sold on it. And he said, from then on, the manager really, really sold it and really pushed it massively. And then it becomes a, like a domino effect once you start winning titles with those methods then the players are buying into massively one player taught me a great story and I, I was shocked at this story this guy again multiple all-stars player of the year he taught me that he went into a club a senior club um, and it took him three months he said he went back to the basics um, but it, it, it like drills being he said being very anal about the technique of drills stuff that you might do at juvenile level um the shape of the hand pass where your hands should be all that kind of stuff and he said it took him three months despite his reputation for the players to um be sold in it and then after about three months he was like the players were like okay fair enough we can see the point in this but there's the same player actually manager now he had a great line where he said simplicity is not respected anymore he said you rock up the training and he says it feels like players feel they have to be there to be entertained that players feel that if there isn't 40 cones out in the field this guy hasn't got a clue what's going on this guy only knows about three drills you know and it, he said like you know sometimes like bluffers he talked about bluffers and he said like these guys turn up with 40 cones and you know, and and more cones than the county council roadworks, and you're you're kind of thinking you strip it back and you say, well, like Christ, what's the goal of this drill? The goal of this drill is to improve your kicking on your non-dominant side. Why do we need fifty cones? Okay, no, fair enough. There is a and uh, there is research uh, about games-based training and and stationary kicking and skills and, and drills-based training. I get all that, okay? But I would argue that if a guy is weak enough um, on his non-dominant side, he's not ready for games-based training on the non-dominant side. I really do. Are you, how can you throw him in when you can't kick the ball? You know? By all means, didn't bring it up. And there was one county team where fabulous environment they had created 
where internal sessions, no, it was only possession games. It was possession games we've all seen, right? It wasn't rocket science, but they were doing possession games solely on the non-dominant side where they were rewarding. Um, excuse me, it wasn't solely possession games, but you were getting extra points for a non-dominant kick pass and a non-dominant hand pass. And he said after a couple of weeks of the management enforcing it, the players began to enforce it themselves. And he said, suddenly you didn't need management there anymore. The players were enforcing the, the, the standards and the players were enforcing the um, scores. Um, I think that's key as well. I, I think that's that's huge, huge. Um, that's really interesting with players enforcing and creating cultures. I know from chatting to, and just to tie it slightly to Hurland, that a, a very successful Hurland team from a few years ago who would have been, I suppose, noted for their physicality, when their just putting an SNC spin on now, when their physical coach came in, started working with him first, they didn't bring it in across the board, everyone had to do gym work. But five or six players took it on and said, Oh yeah, we'll buy into this. Whether it was because of that or just happened to happen, those five or six players happen to have really good seasons. They've never once had to make any effort to push the gym work since because those players did it and did well. It's just become commonplace. It everyone does this now. It's just what we do. We tried something similar in development squads. Now, I didn't mainly, not mainly, only involved with development squads in Hurland, but I saw the football side in Carlo a few years ago played the, you know, the, the Pella, the indoor one with the big rings at the end of the hall. And they got everyone to wear different colour socks. So your left or your non-dominant leg was a red sock, your dominant leg was a green sock. And when they were playing the first half an hour of games, everything had to be done with, all, all the kicking had to be done with the red sock. So really, really pushed that, that two-sided approach. Worked really well for a few weeks, but in one sense, it does start to cut down the level of decision-making because if, as a defender, I know Damien is always going to go on to the red sock, it does make it a little bit easier for me. So I think, at the start, really important to instill and get them in the habit. As as they do start to become more comfortable on that side, I think, open it up again, and then maybe a couple of weeks down the line, bring it back in again, and let's just see, let's reinforce that habit again. So I think mixing and matching there is, uh, is very important. Have you seen the presentation a few years ago by Mick Bowen on complex skills and that two-sided approach there? What's your take on that? Do you feel that's... No, I'd I'd, I'd be a massive fan of it because I understand his logic um, and it's very, very sound logic because you alluded to the hurling, um, how easy it is to cheat a drill um, at underage. All right, lads, everyone onto their bad side here. And when the coach is looking and then he's gone, he's like, all right. So um, would, if you're using two footballs, very hard to cheat that drill. Really isolates both sides. Um, so no, I'd be a massive fan of it. Massive, massive fan of it. And it's amazing how, it came across, how it came, he came about it by accident. Um, just less players one night and uh, loads of footballs, you know. So no fair play to him. And some, some really top-class players there with him who had quite open minds and were eager to buy into it. Like, I just asked, was it gimmicky? I was trying to tease out what you thought of it. I, I was at that live. Oh, I was blown away by it. I think about every six months I go back and watch it again just to remind myself of not so much the drills he's doing or the exercises, but the key concepts behind it so that if you ever want to go put something like that in place yourself, you can understand the place he's coming from to, to go where you want to go or wherever you're developing. And that that's why I say about skill acquisition, um, footballs are gold. So you, you you might rock up to a club and say, I wear only five footballs. And I'm like, okay, lads, fair enough. Things aren't great, like, but how much are we paying for other services here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, if they're paying 
X amount of money for the SNC coach, but we only have four footballs. I'd be saying, lads, we need to look at our priorities here, you know. Um, and I, I would like to say, though, in general, it, the, the thesis findings, I'll get into them in a second, but no one, certainly not myself, I'm not saying that the, the SNC is not important. It's absolutely vital, especially at county level, because nearly all participants, the, the thing they said was they hit them first when they went into inter-county. Um, training was the physicality so there's absolutely no I'm no way in the world of my argument that it's not vital absolutely not what I'm saying is that and I'll get into it in a minute if if if, if Joe Soap isn't playing well is he going down to the pitch with a football or is he going in doing more reps and that's where the problem and it was a, there was a lovely story about a guy he's a well-known current player he's he almost he almost missed the days of being a county minor where he said you'd rock up to training in those days, um, you know, do a few stretches uh, and go up and do your t- kicking practice for maybe 45 minutes. Former training would begin and off you go. He said you would do the equivalent now and you'd barely make it out in time between strapping, activation work, um, all these other things. Which, And I'm not saying they're not important, but there are still so many hours in the day. So where is skill acquisition coming into all this? Uh, it feels like players have been pulled in different directions, yet the core components, the core principles of the game should be skill, skills under pressure and your ability to carry out these skills. And if you look at Dublin, in fairness, right, they're a phenomenally fit team, but I have to give them credit. Their ability to carry out those skills on both sides, subtle things like the non-dominant hand pass, it's huge. The amount of times I've seen them score goals where a point, only a point would have been on if they didn't have a non-dominant hand. The the, the, the last pass is delivered. The, the, the assist is delivered with a non-dominant hand. Subtle things like that. In fairness, you have to respect that by them, you know? Like the amount of times you would see a score on a Dublin team and it's, you know, a series of plays. Right hand top, left foot hand pass, right hand dummy solo left hand hand pass like there, there's such a range of skills there and across the across the 15 too john at that it's not just the the dominant you know uh marquee player it's it's right across it like look at cluxton cluxton won all earns from from in goal where he's been kicking winning points i know off the ground freeze and stuff but you know that's what you see across their 30 man panel is that it's it's not just dependent on one or two players which i think maybe it doesn't transfer down into into clubs too often that there can be a, that dominant player kind of effect where it's like oh well he he can do this or she can do that that off both sides um i don't need to it it really is the, it's a full uh, complement of 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 the, of the panel need to be able for it on that on that full complement of kind of desirable skills, if you think of say a fourteen or fifteen year old now who says oh, I really want to develop my my overall athleticism, gets into race and seed or sprint and everything like that, and develops, you can have a really competent athlete at twenty one or twenty two, but that might be all they'll have. If you have a fourteen or fifteen year old who develops a full range of skills over the course of a few years, and then adds S and C on top of that around the same age, around 16, 17, 18, 19, that is a seriously potent mix when it comes to a dangerous, talented, attacking, defensive, whatever it is, player, when it comes to being on the field. But uh, there's, a massive, <laughs> there's a massive thing around here um, uh, at the moment where 
SNC coaches, some, there's some brilliant ones out there who really appreciate the, the importance of skill acquisition and incorporate it into their training sessions. But I see sometimes in, in, recently around here with clubs, juvenile clubs, they're bringing in SNC coaches and uh, for the lockdown and they're doing these Zoom calls and all that crack. And for 12, 13, 14 year olds, grand, I, I, I agree with it. It's, it's fine because you want to keep these kids active. But I'm thinking, where's the ball skills here, lads? Where's the ball? Where's the skills program here? Where, like, are you like prescribing any skill training here? You know, and that's where I'd be getting very frustrated in general. No club in particular or anything like that. That's where I'd be getting a little bit frustrated. Um, with kids at that age, you know, you, you don't have to put the cart before the horse because, as you said there, if you want to get get their basics right, their running technique skill acquisition diets i think is huge at that age and then you want to put the the icing on the cake at 16 17 18 brilliant i think the likes of, of fundamental movement skills that are developed through playing a few sports and going to local athletics clubs running jumping throwing catching simple stuff like that it's so much easier then to layer sports specific skills on top of that and then your snc on top of that again whereas sometimes it becomes a little bit flipped yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. so if it, I suppose the one thing I would say to you is the, the, the results of the thesis itself. Um, I, w- I will outline that. And I suppose I mentioned to my supervisor, Dr. Phil Carney, another Kerry man. Um, brilliant, brilliant guy. Very generous guy. Um, amazing academic, but has the humility to let his students and me find our own way as well. And then he'll just, like a, like a very good supervisor, will direct you when, when need be, you know. Um the, the importance of being bilateral was the first team. And then that was the unpredictability. Everyone kind of said, look, Jesus, if you're marking a guy who's bilateral, he'll leave you on your hole. Like that's a few of them said that, and, you know, it make you look very, very foolish very quickly. The more subtle parts then were the, the tactical implications of having uh, bilateral players on the team. So by that, I remember one corner forward was telling me, he said, Carl, if I have a centre forward outside me who's one-sided, my runs are 100% dictated by the side he's on the he has he's he's on because i know for example if he's left legged and he's on his right side i'm not getting that ball so i have to loop around or i have to curtail my run so suddenly you're tactically um you're curtailed because of uh, a non a guy who's one sided out the field then you talk about other guys who felt you couldn't get away with being one sided and curious um, midfield, full forward, centre forward, centre back, central areas. Um, another guy, the same guy actually t- said that in an All Ireland semi final, they were twigged within five minutes. The two right sided, very heavily right sided midfielders in midfield. And he said the opposition had them closed down that side of the field within five minutes. It was curtains, it was lights out, like, you know. So, and then the, the final part, the importance was. You know, the influx of, of technology and um, and how, I mean, if we're doing video analysis of a team, the first thing we'll reach for as coaches is his dominant side. Um, and then we'll look for the more the, the team patterns and stuff like that. But as outlined by some um, participants, it is a paradox of inter-county training that it's the first thing you look for in the opposition, but how much do we work on it ourselves? You know, there's an assumption made that, oh, he's a senior now. 
he should have that. But that's misplaced in a lot of cases because a guy could be brought into a county setup for a whole host of reasons. He could be brought in for his speed. He could be brought in for his man marketing ability. He could be brought in for his uh, temperament. Uh, you know, a whole host of reasons he could be brought in. You can't assume an ex- a guy is two-sided because he's in there. Um, so that I, I think in a lot of cases it was misplaced. One guy told me last year they were doing um, hand-passing drills in inter-county training on a non-dominant hand and um, he was mortified he said it felt so alien to him Um, he said it was a juvenile drill it was 100% the right drill he said because he couldn't do it which meant he should be doing it Uh, but he said it felt so alien to him and he said we shouldn't assume he said he actually said and this speaks to you he said we are so professional in SNC nutrition all these areas yet here i am at whatever age won't say and the non-dominant hand pass felt so alien to him and he was asking himself that question i said to another player then i said if you're analyzing he was a back i said if you're mar- analyzing the opposition player and you know his ticks you know he dummy hops he dummy solos to get onto his good side or, or vice versa i said it follows logically that he's doing the same to you and he was like, <laughs> it blew his mind. <laughs> so I kind of said, what are you doing to counteract that? You know, because that's how we have to evolve as a player. You know, we have to evolve. I, I know if I'm playing uh, club football in Kerry at, at Division One level, I mean, it, Demo, you'll speak to this. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's roughly the same players you're coming up against year after year. You know, you know those players fairly well. You know, you have to bring something new to the table. Um, and uh, so that, that was interesting. The second team, the second team then was um, the, the, I suppose, the limitations or the challenges in developing bilateral players. This, I mean, this speaks to the volunteerism of GA. Some clubs have brilliant coaches and others have parents who become coaches. And it's sometimes the look of the draw. It's hard to criticise because they're volunteers. So what players found was there was a huge inconsistency. So you might have the under-12 guy under John Murphy. He was outstanding. The under-14 guy under Shane O'Rourke. Never looked at it. outstanding. And Damien O'Sullivan then just wanted them to work on, like, (laughs) inch pressing. Um, so you know, it, it, that was that was that was kind of what was they found. It was very frustrating, and not just inconsistency amongst coaches at club level, even inconsistency amongst county teams. So you might have um, a manager coming in county senior, a big push for it. That guy gets replaced after two years. He was like, "Nah, we don't have time for that." Another guy came in and he told me a story where he really pushed it at the start of the year at county senior level. And but he said, came come May, April, June, excuse me, that's my months in the wrong order. Um, <laughs> April, May, June, even he was saying that, um, he was saying that you were firefighting at that point in the season, you know, he felt you didn't have time to be working on that stuff. You're implementing game plans, you're saying who's fit, who's injured, who's this, who's that, you know. Um, and I would argue that was the time where you really needed to be doing skills, um. Now, contrast to that, one coach said to me that without fail, they did 20 minutes at 
county senior training without fail for three years, 20 minutes on a non-dominant site. Um, and to be honest, it, it, it showed. Um, so the inconsistency was a massive issue. Atmosphere and environment in, 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 in a squad is another problem. So by that, if I'm implementing non-dominant skills or training, I have to take the hit as a manager and say, right, this is going to go pretty pear-shaped for a while until guys improve. So I got to keep my mouth shut. Okay, I got to accept that standards will not be as high. So I can't be, you know, saying demanding. The same goes for your peers. Okay, Uh, one player said, I said, would you ever try the non-dominant side in that drill? And he mentioned one of the, the big characters in the dressing room. And he said, Jesus, no, man, because like you're shitless of the drill falling down because of you. Um, so you're certainly not going to chance that drill or that 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 skill with um the non-dominant side. You're not going to risk it. He said, because it's doggy dog. I mean they're your teammates, but it's doggy dog. Um and the other thing as well, which was strange, is that you're not going to go to management and say, can we do more training on the non-dominant side? Because in a way, you're kind of telling your manager, I, I, I'm shit on the non-dominant side. <laughs> and you're almost making him even more aware of it. Um, so it's very much individual. Even though it's a team game, you go into county's training and it's very, very individual in a way. Um, so then there was a great story. I remember there was county senior training, an AB game. A guy was brought in and the manager was refereeing the game. And he blew up the game and he said to player X, that was a non-dominant hand pass. Work on your non-dominant hand. And a year later, the same player was brought back in to make up the numbers in an A-B game. And the same thing happened. The manager blew up again and absolutely roasted him. He said, I told you 12 months ago to work on your non-dominant hand. Here we are. Um... So in a lot of cases, it's it's left up to the players themselves to work on it. And that speaks to what I said to you earlier on in the conversation. If they're being pulled in different directions, there are only so many hours in the day. Players will rightly argue, where do I have the time here? Especially at that level. Um, so the environment was a huge thing. Consistency was a huge thing. Expectation that they should already have it was a huge thing. Lack of expertise in coaching was a huge thing. Um, and by that, you have the best S&C guys being brought in best nutritionist being brought in football coaches are largely volunteers um, it's changing but it's largely volunteers they're friends of the manager they're brought in you know lip service I go over to Demo there and say Demo you need to work on your non-dominant side walk away from him and don't talk to him again for six months what am I doing in those six months to help Damien improve his non-dominant side what concrete advice am I giving him what drills am I giving him? It's not acceptable to just walk away from him and not talk to him again for six months and say, what have you done? Okay, am I helping him? It was a lovely story about a guy who said that this is, this is the exception, he said, rather than the rule of a guy who, this is really detailed advice now, where the player was in training one night and uh, the selector after three weeks came over to him in county training and said, I've been watching you there now for the last three weeks, he said. And you're making the same run to the same corner so you can get onto your favourite leg. Is there any chance you might do that on the other side? And 
he said, Jesus, he's 100% right. It wasn't rocket science, but at least it was detailed advice. Um, a county player has said to me, he said, why aren't we at the stage in Gaelic football where we are so reliant on our kicking? It's football. Why don't we have kicking coaches? In, um, in rugby, they have kicking coaches. Um, and we have so many other coaches in football, excuse me, in football, rightly. Um, but the, the skills are kind of been left. They've been left to players, they've been left to managers. And I, I would ask as well, how many coaches and managers in GA know the, the correct technique about the shoulder facing the post? Um, you know, stuff like that that you might, how many would, how many would video a player and his kicking technique and strip it back from him? That's a really good point. As I mentioned earlier about the, the PE and one of the assessment points is a project where the student picks their favourite activity. They have to do an overall analysis and pick four points they want to improve. And one of my top students last year wanted to improve her, her kick. So she did an analysis of it. And when we broke down the hook kick versus the punt kick, she couldn't actually figure out which one she was attempting. They were that crossed over with each other. So she had to go away and research her herself realized she was trying to attempt a hook kick but was doing it largely through the punt designed a little six-week training program for herself reanalyzed at the end a nice little side-by-side video comparison and huddle said like she actually learned a huge amount from it she was 18 years old has played on numerous development squads up along why is this only being picked up now by herself i think that's an important point you said there as well on why don't we have kicking coaches possibly because it's so many people getting involved in the voluntary capacity. Look at what the top teams are doing. The top teams aren't really focused on the basic skills because they expect so many players to already have them down. So overlook that. Also because possibly in rugby, American football, all like that, you can directly measure the success of a kick to points on the scoreboard. And that if your kicker is better, they're hitting touch here, they're putting it over the post here. Whereas because it's such an ingrained skill in Gaelic football, just kind of expect so many people to already have it. It's kind of a specialist position in those sports as well, so i.e. they deem it a specialist coach. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 the the, the specialist position is a is a valid point. Um, I, I I just feel that for for coaches, you know, they they put coaches on the the in GA coaches they want to coach coaches and uh, level one, level two, level three. It's all very well to teach them how to do uh, different. Uh, what you call it, drills and stuff like that. Who's actually doing the technique here? Strip it back again. To be fair, I've I've done my award too in Harlan and the session we had on the skills of the game was top class. The shooter we had in on the day broke him down really well, gives all a really good understanding and showed us how to, you know, spot the common mistakes, how to correct them, not just in tell the players what to do, but how to put this into an activity. So I will say there are some excellent shooters i'm not saying this because i'm on myself I'm, I'm by no means excellent but there are some excellent shooters out there that do some really good work on the skills i think you alluded to it there as well while again very difficult to measure the importance of a really good coach is worth their weight in gold to a team and i think we're starting to see it a bit more in the last couple of years due to the success of all earned winners in both codes that when you strip it back you can see there are some coaches there who really really know what they're doing and you can see their impact on the teams they're working with as well yeah that's, I, I, I think Jason Sherlock was huge in Dublin um, absolutely huge I, I had a lot of respect for him though you know you have to respect guys who are innovative and want to bring stuff from other sports I like that I like looking at the doves off the ball 
and looking at their patterns. And Paul Kinnerk, who actually read, he did have a little bit of an input into my thesis. Um, he read through it at the end. Um, you got to respect what he's doing with, with hurling as well. I mean, he's a wealth of knowledge and yeah, really good, really, really good guy. So you are right in terms of um, there's an acknowledgement that coaches have a really a bigger impact or a bigger role to play as the years go by. Absolutely, yeah. And you can see Paul appreciating the academic side as well, having done his own PhD in games-based coaching. Just on that, the development of your own thesis, when when you were originally putting that together, what eventually guided you towards the qualitative end of the interviews as opposed to more comp-based stuff? Was it, was it personal preference or did you feel that, I think this would best answer the question I am trying to find an answer to? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um, the... It was, I think it was more, I wanted it to be different. I wanted it to be original. There had been quantitative type one studies done, as I said. One was in Australia for AFL, elite AFL players. And they found, again, for example, that even the, 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 the elite guys, they were willing to go to a harder angle to get onto their good side rather than take the easier shot with a non-dominant side, which is amazing, again, at that level. And I really wanted to drill down and ask why. I wanted to drill down and get the why um, and have an original piece. Because the best of my knowledge is the first qualitative piece of its nature, where you're asking players about their experiences and the why and the how. Um, and then another reason, to be honest, was my own personal um, relationships and my ability to get access to these people. Because I suppose I was in a relatively privileged position Um that one thing led to another to another and not many it's not that I'm great friends with any of these people I'm not but I also knew that um, not many would have had the access that I did and what I would say if, 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 if anyone is looking on and say how can you sell your your research it's not Carl Dillon I will say you would be silly in my view to ignore the caliber of these people and what they said Okay, because I don't believe you can get a higher caliber of participants than I got. And that's nothing to do with me. I might have put it together with Phil Carney, but it was just they had really, really good insights about their experience. So that that's how it morphed into the qualitative work. So on that, Carl, just so that's obviously like an excellent piece of work. But from, say, if we look, we talked about Dublin and how they're kind of quite a bilateral team to look at. So when you look at that and then say someone like Adair McConnelly, who was noticeably exceptional bilateral even in a team like that do you think it's possible that going forward that could be kind of the standard they should be aspiring to or is it more that he was somewhat of a, a very big talent in the area or a bit of both you just, I, I believe you're talking about natural skill there but you broke up you froze for about 10 seconds there about Dear McConnelly Sorry, no, so it's more not necessarily just his ability but like I suppose that sheer confidence to just be willing to try doesn't matter if it's on his right or his left side he's going to try the same pass and it's kind of what his eye sees rather than tailoring to the talent to be their side so he's kind of he yeah. said in the past that he's not ambidextrous he kind of just puts the work in so do you think that's the level that we should kind of aspire to be to or that's more of a an exceptional talent that's really no that's 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 so many i'm glad you said all that now because there's so many things in that that i wanted to address the dear mcconnell actually has come up okay this is nothing so much to do with i'm not giving away names or anything like that this is, as a fan, everybody would know who the real 
boy that her players are yeah. over the years. Okay, so I, I'm not giving away much. Shane Walsh in Galway is just ridiculous. Yeah. Gary McConnelly, ridiculous. And Kerry Morris Fitz, ridiculous. Okay. You know, these fellas, it's no secret. Like, so that's really interesting. And I asked one of the players in the thesis about natural talent. I thought he was going to hit me. And you know him. Um, he's, he's so well known. And he got really visibly angry at the idea of natural talent because he was like, I put thousands and thousands of hours into this. He said, wherever I went as a child, there was a ball with me. You know, he felt it was dismissive or disrespect, disrespectful to his um, practice. And another participant said, I can remember verbatim, he said, um, whatever you get at Intercounty, you earn. Um, and another guy, brilliant interview, he said, uh, he was in college, once say the college, and he was doing his uh, kicking practice, and it was kick, it was 30 kicks. So he said, you had to get 30 kicks over the bar in a row. And if you missed on 29, you had to start at one again. And he said, there was a poem. Um, he said, there was a poem we did for the Leaving Cert, Hopkins poem. Um, sheer plod, sheer plod. Um, I think, Don Silly on Shine. And he said, every time I used to retrieve the ball, I used to think of the poem, Don Silly on Shine, Don Silly on Shine. I remember verbatim what he said. He said, because I that plough, he said, will be shining. Basically, the plough on the ground works so hard, it's shining. And he said, I'll be fucking shining come all out and final day. That poem was going through, he said, nonstop. It's amazing, actually, how these guys, oh, I don't profess or claim to be friends with them. They were very good to me, very generous with me to me with their time. But what I can say, the work they put in, absolutely crazy. And you'd have to say good luck to them, you know. These guys work so, so hard. Um, the Dear McConnellys, the 10,000 hours and all that kind of crack, it's a really, really deeper philosophical question and I put it into my discussion. Um, of course, there are more talented guys than others. I think, that, you know, but of what I would say, we shouldn't underestimate the, the absolute obsession of these guys either. There's a thing in academia called uh, rage to master. And um, that's your inherent wiring to be the best you can be. There was a lovely part of an interview as well where a guy who, to me, is just was ridiculous. But he said, I, it wasn't growing up that I wanted to play for my county. It wasn't that I wanted to win All-Stars. It wasn't that I wanted to win All-Irelands. I wanted to be, I wanted to master the game. I wanted to be known that I could do it in rain. I wanted to be known that I could do it in sunshine. I could do it my left. I could do it my right. And um, he said, did I succeed? No. But he said that was constantly the uh, the goal. So it, it, it was interesting to, 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 to hear their mentality. Yeah. I know it's a long way around the, uh, the Dear McConnelly thing, but it did mm. touch on a lot of areas, to be honest. No, I definitely think, because I'd agree, I think it is kind of that huge work rate, because even, this is a completely different sport now, but even I watched interviews with Ronnie O'Sullivan, and he can famously kind of play either side, which is it's rare enough in snooker, because it's to some degree unnecessary. 
But even people asked him, like, why would you do that? And he goes, why wouldn't you want to be able to play off both sides? Like, how is it going to harm me? And you're kind of, when it's put that simply, you're like, well, geez, if it comes in handy once or twice around, surely it's worth doing. And it's just having that dedication to kind of put the errors in. That's really interesting because my research is around positive psychology and well-being. And the closest I can get to a definition of it is around engagement purpose meaning and mastery of what you're doing and it's not necessarily mastering something but that journey to mastery that's true well-being or true positivity or or self-actualizing and to show that that's what they're after as opposed to the extrinsic accolades like all Ireland's all stars county medals all like that they probably then have a much truer sense of meaning or self-worth after not so much mastering those but trying to master those and going through the journey as opposed to winning anything the same player actually it was fascinating. It was a, a serious eye opener because I mean, I was growing up by all I wanted to do was play for Kerry. Like, so you know, master, it wasn't anything about mastering anything. <laughs> so, so it was, it was, you know, they have just a different mentality at that level. It's, it's fascinating to listen to him. Um, but he, the same, the same player actually, it, it, it was like poetry saying he, and he, to be, to be honest, I felt he was two sided and, he said he felt he was two-sided. He said once it was like chess in his head with his opposition marker. The the the, the marker would dive in and would almost say, Go on, have a go off your bad side. And he'd throw it over. And he said the very second on the next or third second or third or fourth ball, the marker dived in. He said, I fucking have, you know, it's all over. You know, and there was another part in where he said like that they'd play a certain team over the years who would have dropped players back. He said, I used to love that. He said, I used to get a bigger buzz out of setting up a score than actually getting the score. You know, I love the challenge, you know, it's just, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. But he said like, you know, there was another guy who said, you know, you have the ability to, if you're two-sided, you, you can fool. He, these are his words now. He said, you can fool to fool to fool to fool. You know? And it, it is, I know what he's saying. Because in the opposition is like, is he going to dummy me or pretend to dummy me or shoot or pretend to shoot or whatever, you know? And it goes on and on and on. So, yeah. That's so interesting the way they create those extra new challenges for themselves within a game when they've kind of sussed out what the defence is about. Um, I was at presentation by Dr. Damien Young at the Games Conference a few years ago where he talked about so many decisions, so little time. It was largely around hurling, but the amount of decisions they have to make in such a short space of time in our learning final. And he says, like you've all these challenges or puzzles you have to try and solve. And without being able to play off both sides, automatically the options you have to solve those are just cut in half. You could potentially have eight and that's just cut down to four by not being able to do all your skills off both sides. Last thing I'm going to ask, because we're conscious of your time now, you've been absolutely brilliant, but to put my researcher hat on now that you've done this investigation you've an idea around what is involved in research the different methods where do you think the field of skill acquisition in terms of research not necessarily to bring it back to sport needs to go next for GA and specifically Gaelic football and just loosely if you could touch on you've said around some people now who are creating tests for skills in Gaelic football how applicable at times are they because it can be very very hard to set up the particular context they'll be used in and the kind of chaotic nature around test it are they worth doing it under 10 11 12 see can they do stuff off both sides and we integrate more into games or can it be more valid further up the chain 
yeah, primary level, we, we, we won in the school. We won two Munster skills competitions in the school, which um, I think they're very valuable to get players focused on practicing at that level. So I, what I would say that absolutely, right, that. Now, in terms of their efficacy, they're limited enough and I can see their limitations at that level. So now that I'm implementing skill tests at, 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 at the level I'm at now, there has to be an element of timer, a timing. They have to be under pressure and that if they don't get their shot off in a certain amount of time, bang, gone. Because um, they can't have all day to take the shot in any skill assessment. There has to be a chaotic nature to the thing. There has to be, I know in basketball skill assessments, they do bring in, um, there was research done on one skill assessments where they bring in one opposition player. Um, you are right though, it's not easy to mirror that chaotic nature and to standardize it. Um, that's the, the, the standardization. Because I, again, let's just say I, <clears throat> I bring in a back to mirror a back. There's only so many times he can mirror being a back, like you know, and then you bring in another back, and then that guy will say, "Well, he's fucking faster than my back." You know what I mean? You know, like you know, you know, and it's a valid point. Um, so yeah, that it's not easy, but I would argue that there has to be a clock. And one coach who spoke about the starting blocks said uh, three seconds was his thing. So you throw the ball to the player. On the whistle, the guy in the starting block mimics the defender. He takes off, and you have three seconds to score or zero on that. So that's one thing I would say there. In terms of research going forward, well, the PhD idea we have, Phil and myself, um, funding dependent is a, a limitation slash criticism you could throw at my 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 study was that it was retrospective. It was heavily reliant on people's past experiences. Um, and there's no question that there has been a change for the better at development squad level, more towards uh, developing non dominant side. I has I have to acknowledge that, um, and is more standardised, is more consistent, and that's absolutely fair. Um, the ladies' game, we would like to go into that. So the plan is really to go into development squad level at tier one, tier two level, compare and contrast do that with ladies game, do video analysis of games and say, right, well, these are their experiences at development squad level. This is what senior games are producing at division or at tier one and tier two. And the key uh, differential to my, our idea is we actually want to implement um, in interventions. So we want to put in three different levels, juvenile, um, 20, 21 year olds and 30 year olds or else cut it down to two and the, the rationale behind that would be okay firstly you would put them uh, training just simplifying here you'll say okay I want you to work on your non-dominant side for 20 minutes four days a week in that group for four months and then we'd do the we'd, 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 we'd do the same with the other group and I want to see is there a palpable difference uh, between the juvenile, how much they improve versus the adults, because there is a conception or uh, there is an idea that it's very, very difficult to improve the non-dominant side in your mid-20s. I want to put that to the test. And I also want to put the, um, the, the complex skills to the test as well, scientifically. So that would be um, an idea for an intervention. 
and that would be the final part of our PhD study. Yeah, no, that's unreal, Carl. Hopefully, in in about a year and a half, when you're when you're knee deep in second round of your lit review, just after going through the first intervention, and your your head is your hair is being pulled out, trying to figure out how to analyze and do all your statistical tests, will you get you back on here to see some potential initial findings and and everything like that? But but thanks a million for your time, and um, if you've got anyone to just shoot with where people can find you, or maybe see some where your work might have been done, then let us know. No, um, I as, as I say, um, I'm with Legion now in Kerry at the moment, um, which is is great. Like it's it's um, it's given me access to really good quality players. Um, and Demo, <laughs> and Demo, yeah. <laughs> in fairness, it is. No, it, it, it has. I, I mean, it, it is giving me access because okay, you have your well-known county players, but at the end of the day, it is a senior club. Um, and it does give you an idea of best practice going forward. Plus, I'm working with um, like Pat Flanagan, who would be well known as well. Um, so that that is good. I, it was an eye opener to me to see these. I mean, they're these, these players. How early they come to training? You know, you name training for half seven, and these guys are strolling in doing their activation work or whatever at half six, quarter to seven. Um, so that that that's where I'm. I'm there at the moment. Um, as I say, I'm talking to you well at the moment. There was a, I had an article in the Irish Examiner before Christmas, and um, I'll just take it from there. I would say to anyone though that it isn't the Carl Dillon um, commentary. Um, this thesis, I think, this research is a voice to the 19 participants, and um, I think people would be wise to listen to what they said and uh, the, I suppose the final thing I would say is just from 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 underage from 11s 12s 13s 14s as coaches including myself that's our window for skill and let's uh, strip it back and just give them a football you know so lads thanks very or much hard. Or a heart. I'm sorry. Again, it's like yeah. what's that? <laughs> uh, thanks very much to the thought of you for the time you gave me and the opportunity. And uh, we'll talk again, please, God. Lovely. Thanks, thanks a million, Carl. Thanks a million.